Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. All right, today our guests are Jayant Krishnamurthy and Hao Fung, who are research scientists at Semantic Machines. Jayant and Hao, welcome. Hi, you too. Hi, great to be here. Jayant I've worked with for a long time. I guess we were in the same PhD program together, and then we both were at AI2, Allen Institute for AI, and then Jayant left from there to go to Semantic Machines. And Howe was at the University of Washington and actually was previously a guest on NLP Highlights talking about a dialogue yeah. system there. So welcome back, Howe. And Howe is left after graduation, went to Semantic Machines. So today, what we wanted to talk about was both like what it's like working at Semantic Machines and some questions around industry versus research kind of stuff. And also a paper that Semantic Machines published at Tackle, the transactions of the ACL last year, on task-oriented dialogue. So I guess we can start by asking, what's it like to work at Semantic Machines? Yeah, it's it's an interesting place to work for sure. We have a really great team of people and we're generally working on Actually, let me tell you what we're doing at Semantic Machines. So at Semantic Machines, we have basically two goals. One is to kind of develop a dialogue system product, which is it's mostly a platform that people can use to build dialogue systems. And the other is to perform more like open-ended academic style research. So we're kind of doing both activities at the same time. We think the academic research should inform the dialogue system research, but maybe it's a little more long-term or something like that. But I would say on balance, we're probably a little bit more product focused. Like we tend to do a lot of research that actually improves the dialogue system. And we tend to do a little bit less research that's like more the kind of thing you'd see in universities or things like that. So we do a little bit of that. We definitely have a couple of projects going for that right now. Yeah, but working there, it's, it's a it's a great environment. We have really interesting team of people. Everyone's really friendly. Everyone's really collaborative. I think we come up with pretty clever solutions to problems, which I'm always impressed by that. So I think it's a cool place to work for sure. How do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I just want to emphasize like we have, we are working on a diverse kind of problem, like which all related to conversation. Yeah, like it's not only NLP, but also machine learning, program language, and uh, etc. So it's a great place to work on kind of real world problems while like, still being able to do some kind of fancy research. Interesting. Yeah, one thing I'll say is that I think we're pretty ambitious. Like we really do want to make progress on some of these like hard like language understanding problems, right? And so I think we're very willing to like do hard things or like innovate and take things that are like maybe not the common approach, right? And I think like this paper, for example, is an example of that where like we didn't go build a slot filling dialogue system because we said, hey, these systems are kind of limited. So like we're not going to do that, right? We want to do something new that actually has more capabilities. And we actually have conversations where we look at this system and we're like, well, yeah, but it doesn't do these four things. And like, how would you come up with an approach that does those four things on top, right? So I think we're going to continue trying to like push the envelope in terms of what's possible in these kinds of conversational AI systems. Yeah, interesting. So you mentioned that you both focus on building a product and also doing academic research. Has that always been true? Are you more, are you shifting more towards academic research or is it, what, what would you say, I guess, the reason I'm asking these questions is because I, for a long time, I saw people going to semantic machines, but didn't really hear much about what was going on there. And so now I get to talk to someone and, I, and I'm curious. That's all. Yeah, I think the way I'd look at it is we were just we always wanted to publish, but we've been kind of 
distracted with other stuff. Like when you're a startup and you're trying to like sell a product or whatever, it's kind of hard to find the time to actually go write the ACL paper, right? Because like, does this actually help you succeed? Like probably not. You might go out of business. So you have some other pressure. And then we got acquired by Microsoft. And then it took us like maybe a year to kind of just figure out like how we fit in and what we're doing. And there's a bunch of work going on there. So this is really just, I think we've found kind of where we fit in and we found the time to like actually engage with the academic community. And this paper is sort of like our first publication, but like we have more in the pipeline now. And like, I think it's going to be much more of a, you're going to see more from us. Yeah. And I guess you're hiring, or at least you have hired faculty members part-time also. And I, I guess I, I assume that their interest is largely also in publishing. Yeah, so we definitely have, yeah, so we hired Jason Eisner recently, also Ben Van Dermy, and it's a mix in terms of what they're actually working on, but Jason Eisner in particular is kind of the head of our more academic research kind of branch of the organization, and so he's definitely driving more projects along that line. Okay, cool. Before we get to the paper, I have one more question or line of questions that I'm curious about. I imagine NLP research is quite different. So when you, when Jayant, when you left AI2, you were going to a research position, right? But not a publishing position. And so I wonder if you have thoughts on like what the difference is between NLP research when your focus is publishing versus NLP research when your focus is building a product. It's different for sure. I think, you know, if you're trying to develop a product, like the product needs to work at the end of the day. So I think that means you have a different risk profile for your research projects and you have a different you have a different notion of success, right? Like it probably won't do you any good in a product driven thing to say, hey, I have a model and it currently gets 32% accuracy and I got it 35% accuracy. Cause like, you know what? You're not gonna be able to ship your 35% accuracy model. That sucks. Right. So you kind of need to change like the the set of projects that you're working on, or you might need to like reformulate your problem so that like at the end of the day, if your project is successful, you can actually put it into the product, right? Yeah, I don't know. How what do you think? Yeah, I think that's mostly agree with that. I think I directly went from school to my machines, so I don't know a position doing the publishing industry or in other labs, but uh, at many fields. I think the the difference is between submission and uh, doing research in grad school is more like in grad school you're kind of working on your own problems and it's uh, like uh, you can make a lot of assumptions to formulate the problem. But in an uh, industry product driven lab, you kind of want to make things work. So you have to not in- ignoring all those like different situations or assumptions. So but that's also the exciting part of working on a thing that can make a real impact. And I guess in, yeah, go ahead, Jane. You're a little more constrained in that the thing that you're doing has to fit into the broader product context that you're working in, right? And some of those assumptions that you might be able to make in grad school, like how says, are things that you just can't make because like they're not true for your product, right? You're also working on your research like the engineering for your research fits into a broader context as well, right? So you have more infrastructure, you're going to collaborate with a lot more people, the teams are bigger. There's that kind of stuff, right? The actual mechanics of the work, I think, are a little bit different. Whereas like, I think in academic research, you often have projects which are like one or two people writing code together, right? And then maybe you have one person advising or something. And I think the projects we engage in tend to be much larger than that. And one large difference that I imagine is true is in academic research, we often find ourselves working on toy problems. And like, 
this is just as much a criticism of, of my own work, right? I, I've been in the, the business recently of building some synthetic data sets. Well, like synthetic is a, is a fuzzy word there, but building data sets that are not particularly realistic of any real world problem that anyone has, just because from a language understanding perspective, I think there are interesting problems to solve. But for product driven research, I imagine you would stay very far away from that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's really just a question of of risk profile, right? Because I think that work can be interesting, right? It's just a little bit more long term, right? You're saying, okay, I think there's some fundamental defect in these models and I need some data set to help me diagnose that defect. And then once I have that data set, people will maybe build models that address that defect. And then when we apply to our real world problems, they're like better, right? It's just, it's a long path to go from that data set to something you can ship. Right. So that, that's kind of what I mean by, by different risks. There's a lot of research that I think is much easier to do in academia than like a company. Right. Because like, I mean, take like all the work on neural networks. Right. It's been like 30 years of people working on neural nets, coming up with little modules like LSTMs and things like that. And like you could definitely not engage in that at a company because like, I mean, well, you could engage in a company if it's sort of an academic style research environment, right? But like, no one's going to say, oh, uh, you're inventing this like LSTM unit. This is great. Uh, we're going to like plug it into our system tomorrow, right? Yeah, I like the way you described that. There was one other question in something you said earlier. When you described what you're doing at Semantic Machines, you described building a platform for people to build dialogue systems on, which was different from how, what I thought you were going to say, which was that you were building a dialogue system. Can you talk about the difference between those and what you're actually trying to do as much as you're allowed to say, at least? Yeah, I mean, we're doing both, right? If you look at this paper, for example, this is kind of a description of an abstract way you can build a dialogue system, right? It's really a platform, but it's hard to build a platform without also building a product on the platform and making sure that the product works, right? So we're doing both. Actually, our first product just launched like a week or two ago. So it's actually out there live now. If you have Outlook Mobile on iOS, there's a little microphone button on the calendar screen and it's our calendar assistant. And so you awesome. can check it out. It's currently like being rolled out. So like, I don't know exactly what percentage of people have it, but like in a month or something, everyone will have it. I encourage you to check it out if, if you're interested. It's a pretty neat assistant. It's got a lot of different capabilities related to calendaring and it has a lot of like cross-domain interactions, like understands your org chart, one of the things that it does that's really cool is it's tightly integrated into the native UI of the app. So like it actually like moves around the calendar screens and like fills in the form fields and stuff like that. And you can you can refer to things that are on screen. So like if you're in a, if you have a meeting with someone, you can say like book another meeting with them and it'll like pull the person from the screen and like make another meeting. So like it, it does a lot of pretty neat stuff. That's pretty cool. I didn't I hadn't heard about this. Awesome. So I think that's a good segue to go into the paper that we wanted to talk about, your tackle paper last year, which is called Task-Oriented Dialogue as Data Flow Synthesis. Do you want to start by giving a quick pitch for like what's the point of this paper? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I'll give a quick historical note just to put this in context, which is at Semantic Machines, we've actually built a bunch of different dialogue systems and we've learned a lot about like what works and what doesn't work. And this paper is kind of like a description of the system that we kind of currently have, and it kind of reflects what we think is our best thinking or best practices for making a dialogue system. So that's kind of like what we're trying to do in this paper. And just to kind of give a, a summary of the paper, which might be a little long, but this paper is basically describing a new approach to task-oriented dialogue. So task-oriented dialogue means that 
you have a system and it's trying to do something on behalf of the user, right? It's not just chit chat. It's like you want the system to make an event or book a flight or something. And you can kind of think about that as you're building a dialogue system that needs to like execute some program on the user's behalf, right? Based on what the user said. And I think there are really two challenges in task-oriented dialogue that have to do just with how language works. The first is that language is compositional, which means you can kind of take utterances and build more complex utterances by substituting phrases, right? So I can say, book a meeting with Matt. I can say, book a meeting with Matt's manager. I can say, book a meeting with Matt's manager and his team, right? So if you want your system to be able to handle all of these combinatorially many utterances that you can build in this fashion, you better have some way for your system to build up the meanings of the complex utterances from sort of smaller pieces, right? The meaning of Matt's manager needs to be dependent on the meaning of Matt and the meaning of manager. The second problem is that in task-oriented dialogue, the interpretation of the language is contextual, which means it depends on the conversation, like the history of the dialogue so far. And the way to think about that is very simply, like you can refer back to things earlier in the dialogue. I can say her. And what does that mean? It means, well, it's some person that we were talking about, but which person actually depends on the conversation we already were having, right? Another example of this is you could say something like, I meant on Monday. And what that means is like, well, if you were booking a flight, it means, okay, I want to book the same flight, but I want it to leave on Monday. But if you're like booking an event, it means something different, right? So in order to understand the meanings of these utterances, you need to have some context-dependent behavior in your dialogue system. So I think those are like the two big challenges, maybe, of task-oriented dialogue. And you know, this paper is kind of our approach to building a system that kind of addresses both of these challenges. And our main idea is kind of a representational idea. It's how do you think about representing the state of the dialogue? And so our, um, we're proposing this representation, which is a data flow graph, which you can basically think about as a record of the execution of all of the programs that the system has synthesized on the user's behalf, like in previous terms. And then interpreting a new utterance with this data flow graph is basically building a program which extends the graph with new information based on what the user currently said. And what's cool about this operation is, or this representation, is that it lets us introduce meta computation operators which are operations that kind of look back at the graph that you have so far and like pull out graph fragments and like inline them into the current term. And these metacomputation operations let us very naturally handle things like references, like the example I gave of her, or revisions, like I meant 2 p.m. So the other thing that's great about the metacomputation operators is they give you very compositional analyses of user utterances, which makes it very efficient to train or data efficient to train your semantic parser. So I guess that's kind of a summary of the data flow graph representation. There, there's a lot of information in here. Um, it was very hard to fit this stuff into this paper. Um, so there's definitely more stuff we can talk about in here, but I think that's kind of the high level. The other thing that we do in this paper is we released a large data set of like a large dialogue data set annotated in this data flow graph formalism. It's a, it's a cool data set because it's realistic. It's based on, I mean, it's representative, let's say, of what we're using in the calendar assistant that I told you about. It's got very unconstrained user utterances, uh, there's lots of cross-turn and cross-domain interactions. I mean, there isn't really a notion of domains in data flow graphs, but like what people would normally consider domains, like people and events, you know, there's lots of cross-domain interactions there. And so we took this data set and we also ran some experiments just to demonstrate how the data flow representation actually improves your semantic parsing accuracy.
So is it the usage of the data flow graph that's uh, the novel aspect here? I'm not very familiar with how dialog systems usually work. Yeah, this is a paper that's really about how you think about the notion of like dialogue state in your dialogue system, right? So I think there's basically two approaches to dialogue systems in the past. The first one is this kind of like the kind of traditional dialogue systems kind of came out of the speech recognition type literature, right? Where you kind of have these intents and slots. You can think about that as basically like the interpretation of an utterance is calling a function on specific spans of strings from the utterance. And then you know, there's some notion of a dialogue state, which is like just some class or some object or something, right? Maybe it's it's a bunch of slots with values in them. And there's some dialogue manager, which basically says, okay, I'm in this state and I have these intents and slots and I'm going to transition to the next state based on those intents and slots, right? And so that approach is, it's a little limiting. I mean, the intents and slot representation doesn't do well with compositionality, right? I mean, if, if you want to have more complex ways to build people, for example, there isn't a way to like put that into the intent and slot representation. And also the, the notion of the state is pretty restrictive, right? So if you want to have like, references back to things from previous turns, it's a little bit unclear how to do that, right? I mean, you could probably put it in the state somehow, but it's not kind of natively built into the, the formalism. The other approach to this kind of dialogue, I would call kind of contextual semantic parsing. We're very much also doing contextual semantic parsing, so it's not all that different, but I think the difference is really how you think about the context, right? I think in contextual semantic parsing, you're basically thinking about the context as like the sequence of programs that you've predicted so far and you have some semantic parser and it has some like copy operation or something like that where it can like look back at the previous programs and like inline chunks of those programs into the current program. And the, the thing about this that is maybe not ideal is that it's a little bit harder to deal with the things that we're doing with like metacomputation operations, right? I think a lot of these things are sort of conceptually representable in that you could grab the right piece of the program but it's just harder to actually predict it for the semantic parser because it's not, you kind of have a, a non-compositional analysis, right? If the person says her and the parser has to like go and figure out who her is and inline it directly into the computation, it's a little bit more of a challenging prediction problem. Oh, there's also kinds of references that you can't handle in this approach, but maybe we can talk about that. I, I guess just, just to make this concrete, so the I, I come from a semantic parsing background and not from a dialogue background, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do the what you called contextual semantic parse. Like that's that's where I, how I approach what you're doing here, and it seems like the closest analog that I know of previous to your paper is the ADIS dataset, which is booking flights in a dialogue kind of setting. People have separated out the utterances so that they're not contextual, but people have also tried to model it contextually. And I believe, well, Elaine Sewer had a, a, an award-winning paper a few years ago that was modeling on top of this ADIS dataset. And this, she used this copy mechanism that you talk about. So like, if you want to refer back to something previous in the conversation, you produce a new program for that utterance that has to remember somehow like the entire program that was predicted previously, whereas you have something, what you introduce is basically the way I think of it is, is a, a different language representation. I think you would probably agree with that characterization, a different language representation instead of SQL that will give me a parse of each utterance that's a lot closer to the language itself. And so your, your main contribution, at least as I saw it in this paper, were some clever ideas about language design for contextual semantic parsing. Yeah, I think that's a fair summary, at least of a certain aspect of it. Like that's kind of the benefit of the data flow graph. The way I would 
Yeah, I, I would very much agree with that in that the thing, one of the things that we're really trying to do is keep the analyses of each utterance, you know, like the programs that we generate, we want to make sure that those are very like compositional or there's sort of, there's a clear mapping between sort of phrases of the utterance and parts of the program, right? Because we've found that this makes it much more data efficient to train your semantic parser, right? If you, like, look, neural nets can do anything. So with enough data, you could have some crazy divergent programs and like it would probably work with enough data. But in real life, it's pretty painful to annotate these programs for utterances. I mean, they're computer programs. They're not easy to produce. And so we would really want like to minimize the amount of data that we need to train this thing. And we found that you know, having this like tight correspondence between programs and utterances just makes it much more data efficient. And you know, these metacomputation operators give you those tight correspondences. Yeah, just to hit on that point a little bit more, I, I think there's plenty of evidence at this point that it's not just data efficiency, I think it's also better generalization. And especially if you think of what, what's called compositional generalization in the semantic parsing literature, where we're intentionally showing you stuff at test time that you didn't see at training time, or, or that is, I take stuff that I saw at training time and I, and I combine it in new ways at test time. And if I've got longer sequences that, that the model has had to memorize, it seems reasonable to say that the, the model is going to have a much harder time generalizing that stuff because it had to the, the pieces that it's trying to put together are much bigger and it had to, it's thinking of, to anthropomorphize the model a little bit, it's, th it's thinking too much about these long sequences that it had to memorize and it's not able to just compose some simple pieces in, in simple ways. So yeah. I, I think at this point, it'd be good to give an actual example of the kind of, I guess there were two or maybe three like key insights in your paper and giving some examples of what exactly these were and like how they show up in the credit, the programs or data flow graphs that you generate would be good. You want to start with how, how you handle referring expressions? Sure. Yeah. So, right. So we've basically introduced these meta computation operators and we're going to use them to annotate any sort of contextual, you know, user utterance, right? So the first meta computation operator is refer. And you can basically think about you know, the point of refer is to annotate like any referring expression like that one or the event at 2 p.m. or, I don't know, Pradeep, right? These are all referring expressions, and the meaning of those things depends on the dialogue history or context so far. And the way that we annotate these is the refer operation takes as an argument a constraint, which is basically a declarative specification of the thing you're looking for. So I would annotate the event as refer to a constraint of event, and it's any event, I don't care which event. I could say the event at 2 p.m. would be, you give it a constraint where you say the start time of the event needs to be 2 p.m. And what the refer operation does is it actually looks at the data flow graph for the dialogue so far, and it tries to find a vertex in the graph that is an event at 2 p.m. And then it will basically inline that graph fragment in as its result, right? So it can do a couple other things too. Like it can actually synthesize new programs because sometimes sometimes you need that capability, but that's kind of the basic idea. Yeah, and I guess to ground this a little bit more, I'm familiar with a paper a few years ago called Neural Symbolic Machines by Chen Liang and collaborators that could refer to, say, partial executions in a, in a program. So imagine I have a question about a table of text and it's like 
what are the what are the names of the people who scored first or something and uh, or who you know, like I imagine I, I refer to a row twice in a program. Um, I could first produce the row in my program, and then second, uh, what the, the second time I need it, I just output a variable that points to the previous time I generated this this program, and so th- that was hopefully an understandable explanation for listeners about how you could handle very simple kinds of referring expressions previously if like exactly what I needed was already specified in the program that I was trying to execute. You could point back to it. But what you've introduced here is is something substantially more general because the thing that I want to point back to doesn't have to have an explicit representation already. I can just say I want to refer to something and then give it some constraints. Yeah, so I think the first thing that you said is basically that I mean, another way to another way to think about that is that programs aren't trees. They're actually DAGs because you can define a variable somewhere and then you can use it multiple times in subsequent computations. Right. So if you compare this sort of refer thing to, uh, let's say, that kind of DAG interpretation, it's a little bit different and it's different for a couple of reasons. The first one is that you can actually specify a constraint on the thing that you want in refer. And that constraint doesn't actually operate over programs. It actually operates over executed programs. And this is like important because if you say the event at 2 p.m., right? Or no, let's say, for example, let's say the user says something like, I don't know, what events do I have? And the interpretation of this in your system is run an event search and like give me back a list of events. Right. So you have some function which is like returning a list of events. And then the user says, like, the event at 2 p.m. What does that mean? Well, it means there's some event inside that list whose start time, let's say, is 2 p.m. And they're talking about that specific event. But that event doesn't actually exist as a like part of the program, right? It's like, it's actually like the value of the program, and it's actually nested in the value of the program. So to get it out, you'll have to like do some list operation or something, right? So refer lets you handle those kinds of cases, which I think you don't quite get by just operating on the programs without the execution of the programs. Yes, that is an excellent example. I like that a lot. Great. So just to recap what we've talked about so far, your the main point of the paper is this new le- a better representation language for handling contextual dialogue. We've talked about how you handle referring expressions in really interesting ways. The other main piece that you added was being able to revise previous utterances. You want to tell us about how you handle that? Yeah, so for revision, this is trying to handle utterances like, what about on Monday or what about in 2021, right? So like, let's say the user was like, create an event at 2 p.m. and then they changed their mind and they meant like, sorry, I meant Tuesday, right? Or Tuesday at three or whatever, right? They're basically trying to do something and they change their mind about what they're trying to do. Maybe there's a system misrecognition or maybe they just actually change their mind, right? And we want to have a way to kind of gracefully deal with these kinds of utterances where they're just trying to revise what they previously did. So the way that we do revision is we have this revision metacomputation operator that I guess the way to think about it is that it grabs a previous data flow fragment and it does sort of like a substitution operation where it like finds something in that fragment and it replaces it with something new, right? So if they said something like, what about on Monday? 
conceptually what you want to do is you want to go find the computation for whatever you did on the previous turn. And you want to look upstream of that and you want to find some date or something. And you want to swap that out with, on, with Monday, right? So that's kind of what the revision operation lets you do. I, as I read the paper, I was trying to think of like, what's the closest analog that has been done before to this? And I had a hard time thinking of anything. Are you aware of anything that was similar to this that people have done before? I haven't really seen anything like this. Yeah, I, it's interesting and, and pretty cool. So how do you specify, how do you, how does specifying the revision actually work? Yeah, so so the revision operation, it takes, it takes three arguments. It takes a, basically a specification of like the root computation that you're trying to return, right? So this would be something like, find me the thing that was computed on the last turn, for example. 95% of the time, that's what you want. So that's probably the most common use case of that oper that argument or the most common value. And then it takes a specification of the thing you're trying to replace, which is like a constraint on a type. So like if you're trying to say, what about on Monday, it might be a constraint date, right? And then it takes a, a new argument, which is like the thing you want to put in in place of the thing that you removed, which in this case would be like the date of Monday. Yeah, and then it does this like graph splicing kind of thing, and it returns um, sort of the, the new graph fragment, right, where the where you substitute in the new thing for the old. So the details of that graph splicing are are, are probably too hard to describe in audio, but you said that the, the data flow representation is essentially a history of all of the programs that have been executed, and you have a clever way of revising that while keeping the graph intact, basically, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's some complexity that shows up here. There's like, there's some things that you want to do around like lazily evaluating these computations. So like if someone revises something, you probably don't want to re-execute all of the computations because you've actually already executed some of them. So there's some subtlety that happens here for sure. A meta level question about this. Do you remember or know that like how this feature, what led to the, the, the design of this functionality? Like, is this from looking at actual usage of a system like because as we say like there's there's really nothing like this in the history of contextual mm -hmm. task oriented dialogue in, at least in academic research so like what led you to this point this is actually from before my time at semantic machines so this feature was definitely implemented while i was at semantic machines but people were like no we need to do this like when i showed up there on day 1 like they were worried about this use case so i don't actually know how they determine that it's important. One thing I will say, though, is that we would like to make a dialogue system that is like easy for people to use. And like you kind of have to accept the fact that your system is going to make mistakes and people need to be able to recover from those mistakes. Right. So revision is like one operation that really lets people do that. Right. It lets you correct the system if it misrecos you or something. It doesn't like you know, if you had like maybe a more traditional slot filling kind of system, it'd be much harder to like, if you said the start time wrong or something, and it was now asking you about the subject of the event, I mean, it might just be unrecoverable, right? You might just have to start over. And that's not a good experience. Yeah. Yeah. I also got a hint of your, the jargon that you probably use. You said misreco in there, I believe, which I, I think you mean for misrecognition, if it misrecognizes you. Yeah. Yeah. Misre speech misrecognition. Yeah. Okay, cool. I guess this is it's just an example of something that you would think about in a product focused research environment that you might not think about in an academic focused research environment. And so, yeah, interesting and valuable. 
the last main section of, of your paper on the language representation was about recovery and how you how you handle situations that the I guess when you're trying to execute a, a program or a data flow graph, you get into a problem. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So we have this kind of exception handling mechanism. And I think there's really two things to say about this, because one is like you need exception handling. Right. But what's kind of interesting is that we use exception handling for like use cases that you, know, you maybe wouldn't expect. Right. I guess. Could you could you give an example of what you mean by exception handling? Yeah. Yeah. So the we're building a dialogue system where we're going to synthesize a program with a machine learning model when the user says something and we're going to run that program. And you know what? Programs can fail for like all kinds of reasons. Right. Maybe your program hits some external API and the server's down or maybe the user's credit card was declined, or maybe that the user said something like, I want a meeting on February 31st, and like your date time library is not going to be happy about that date, right? There, there's all kinds of reasons that your program can crash. So you need to have some mechanism where if the program crashes, you know, the dialogue system doesn't crash, you recover gracefully, right? You say, hey, I ran into a problem, and maybe you describe that problem to the user. So on that level, like you need to have some sort of exception handling mechanism. And you can think about it as basically like try a catch, right? It's like, I'm going to run this program and whatever part of it executes is going to create data flow. And some parts of it can be unexecuted because like something could have thrown an exception in the middle. And now I get an exception and I got to deal with it. And, you know, the way you probably want to deal with it is you want to look at the exception. You want to like say something to the user describing what went wrong, right? So that's kind of exception handling in a nutshell. The interesting thing maybe about exception handling is that we use exception handling for things like controlling dialogue flow. So an example, like, let's say if the user wants to create an event, there's like some mandatory fields, like they've got to tell you the title and they've got to tell you when it starts. The way the way slot filling dialogue systems would do that was they'd have like some state and they'd have like, oh, these are the two slots. And like, I check that they're not filled in. And if they're not filled in, then like, I'm going to ask a question or something. Right. The way we do that is you just try to create the event and the API that creates the event says, hey, the subject's missing. I'm going to throw an exception. I can't create an event without a subject. And then the same exception handling mechanism can basically look at that exception and say, oh, what would you like the subject to be is the right response to the situation. Yeah. On that note, how you've been kind of quiet here, but this makes me think of uh, like Alexa prize, Alexa challenge kinds of stuff where you build a more less task oriented dialogue system. But some of these concepts seem like they might help out in the Alexa challenge systems. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. Like the way we approach the Alexa prize system is more like a traditional dialogue system instead of like a main parsing. But there's all this idea about like, for example, this error handling thing, like we sometimes cannot, like there's API errors we have to handle, like say we, we have to do that, but there's an error handling module specifically it's not like a kind of exception handling in a program language, but it's like a kind of a similar component. And also there's all these like revisions, like what about tomorrow is also like this user can say, let's talk about sports or maybe what about music. So we also need to handle kind of the revision. But again, the way we handle that is quite different from the revision. So it's very interesting to think about these two different way to design dialogue system and how they uh, how the analogy and the differences are there. Yeah, yeah, I guess I could be a little bit more 
concrete about the question. So if you were starting an Alexa Prize team now, would would you take this kind of semantic machines approach to building an Alexa Prize dialogue system or would you try something else? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I would definitely try these semantic machines approach. But I think we still have some question to solve. Like the way you look at these like task oriented dialogues is less proactive. So the user kind of know what they want. They just like incrementally build these like building all the slots or uh, specify their plans. A lot of price spot. So the user is like sometimes is they they don't know what they want to talk about. So we have to be more proactive. So there is more about how to be how to proactively suggest things and maybe to probe the user's interest, which is something is not uh, currently we're designing the semantic machines techniques, but we've been thinking about how we can extend the framework to do this kind of interactions. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess when I thought about this recovery mechanism, I thought it was a, a clever way of handling a lot of scenarios and thought it, it could be applicable to this more open-ended dialogue kind of setting. Interesting to think about. Okay, that's probably enough detail on the contributions of your paper in the language design kind of aspects. You also, as you said earlier, you created a data set using this. What does that data set look like? Yeah, I can talk about that. So the data set is like we basically use like cross-sourcing. So we cross-source the data set, like we design uh, uh, several scenarios, like you want to schedule a meeting with your manager or maybe your team. And so we ask the data specialist to do a, uh, we ask the Turker to come up with the uh, extend the dialogue, and then there's a data specialist to annotate the dialogue, uh, and this this term with the plan. And so that's kind of the basic idea, but there's a lot of like features in this data set, like there's a cross-domain interaction. So in, rather than just like saying it's a multi-domain, like you switch from one domain to other domain, it's really like in the, inside the interaction, you have like different connection between the domains. And it's also a very large data set, and at that time it's the largest one, but maybe there's a more, uh, more, uh, more data set now. And yeah, so, and also the another big thing is like, we also take into account, like there's all these out of domain interactions. It's not like there's all these fencing um, turns. Like if you, you user want to set alarms, so the system cannot do that. We still have that kind of interaction kept in the data set. The, the the fencing point you bring up there, I did have a question about this as I read the paper. Hopefully this isn't too technical for listeners. But at the beginning, Jayant, you said that making sure that the, the translation from language to programs was compositional is really important for generalization reasons, for like making the learning easy for the parser. But when you go to fencing, you translate an entire utterance to a single predicate, which is I'm going to stop here, basically, is what, it, is what the, the program says. And this is very much not compositional. And I, I wonder, like, does this hurt learning? Like, what, what's going on here? Any, any comments on that? Yeah, yeah, this, this is a good question. So, yeah, just fencing is what we call it when the user tries to do something that the system can't do, okay? We're trying to, like, fence off some area of utterances. That's why it's called fencing. And the way we do that is we basically just have a bunch of functions, which are, like, fence out of scope like this is and then you know the agent will just say something like hey i can't do that or whatever right and there, there might be a couple different ones like there might be cases where like 
there's things that people try to do a lot and you might want to have a specific utterance like, hey, I can't set alarms, right? If lots of people are trying to set alarms instead of just saying, hey, I can't do that. But yeah, basically it's like there's a bunch of these like single functions with no arguments. And as you observe, these are not compositional, right? So you kind of have to look at the entire utterance and then predict this one function and it doesn't like decompose according to what the user said. And yeah, this I don't think is ideal. I think we would probably get better generalization if we analyze things compositionally. There have actually historically been cases where the distinction between the things that are fenced and the things that are not fenced are quite subtle. Like there was a time when you couldn't make a recurring meeting. So like if you tried to create an event, that was fine. But if you tried to create an event and have it recur weekly, that was not fine, right? And so that's like a very not, I mean, that's a, that's a subtle distinction for the model to learn, right? And so like, there've definitely been cases where those kinds of things are, are confusing and cause a problem. And I do think having more compositional analyses for these like fencing plans would help. We've actually talked about it. The reason we haven't done it is that it's, well, it's twofold. Uh, the first is that you have to actually decide what the programs for the fencing programs look like. And that's not trivial because like, you know, you're not actually going to execute these things, right? So you, you, it's very unconstrained. It's like, you're almost like making FrameNet or something like that. And I don't know, it's, a, it's a, just a little too open-ended to settle on as a group. The other thing is that people will actually have to annotate these programs now. And that's a lot harder than annotating like this, you know, very simple fencing program. So that's kind of why we haven't looked into it, but... I do think there's something interesting there. I wonder if it would help the model to have a classifier first, like before you even give input to the parser, just like try to class it, I guess, backing up. Like you could train your parser only on programs that are not fenced and you have that is your parsing system. And then before you get to the parsing system, you train a classifier that says, should I parse this or should I fence it? And I, I, I don't know. I wonder if that would help so to, to have that be two separate models instead of one model. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. I don't know either. I feel like we might have tried this, but if we did try it, it clearly didn't work well enough for us to actually use it. So it, it, it's a good question. I mean, one other thing to point out is like the fencing thing you predict is like literally the first and only token of the program. So like it's not all that different from just like having the semantic parser classify it. Okay, cool. We are getting close to out of time. I had a quick question about the data collection process. So given that the focus here is uh, of building a product, I mean, it's essentially product-focused research, right? So uh, I guess you would probably want the data collection process to be, or the data to be as realistic as possible, right? So how did you ensure that in the process, especially when you have to when you need data for things like exceptions and fencing, as we talked about, how did you make sure that the data you get is kind of the data that users would ask in a realistic situation? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I think the way we do that is like, we have a diverse, we have set up a pipeline to do the data collection. So we want to get a diverse response from the Turkers. So it can cover different scenarios. And it's not a, like a one-shot uh, data collection. It's kind of going through multiple iterations. We get a one round of data, data collection, and then we have some dog feeding, like bot running. And then we figure out, okay, there is some scenario we are not covered very well. So there's lots of errors. 
so we can spin up another round of data collection. Yeah, so it's really an interactive process when you do the product, but when you release the data set, there's not so much details revealed about how we exactly do this few rounds of data collection. Yeah, we spend a lot of time thinking about how to collect data and what data to collect and how to annotate it. It's actually one of the hardest parts of this entire thing. And we don't really go into a lot of details in the paper because we think some of that is like, some of that is our secret sauce, like the tools and stuff that we're using are kind of like, those are our tricks. And we think those are the things that are actually hard hard for people to replicate. That's interesting to hear. I guess I've been, I think about at least a large, a large part of my research contributions in the last few years have been like thinking about how to do data better. And so it'd be really interesting to hear what you think is your secret sauce, but I suppose that'll have to be a conversation for another day. But uh, this has been a really fun conversation. We're about out of time. So this has been a really fun conversation. Um, Jayant and how do you have any, was there anything you wanted to talk about that we missed that you want to talk about quickly or any final thoughts? Yeah, so we actually have released our code in GitHub and there is a repo there. You are welcome to use it to reproduce our experiments. And also we have the conversion script to convert multi-wall representation to our data flow representation. And then we also have a leaderboard and you're welcome to submit your system to the leaderboard and to contribute to this community. Yeah, I would definitely encourage everybody to check out the check out the data set. And um, I think it's a, it's a pretty useful data set and it, it's uh, pretty realistic and large for, for modern standards. So definitely would encourage you to check that out. If you have questions, uh, you can post them on the GitHub repository. You can also feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at jayantkrish. Well, I won't spell it, but I'm sure you can figure it we, out. And we can put a link to that in our in the description of the episode. Yeah, cool. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having Bye. us.